Welcome to the Prime Effects Podcast. I'm your host, David Shillington. In this podcast, we'll be normalizing the conversation around mental health and we'll be interviewing elite athletes, some of Australia's admired sporting stars, and finding out what strategies they use to overcome setbacks in their life and what we can learn out of that to use in our life and equip you with some worthwhile strategies that are proven to boost your mood, motivation, energy, all things we call mental fitness to help us feel our best and perform our best. Enjoy the show. All right, good morning. I'm with Libby Trickett here. What a pleasure, what an exciting morning to be chatting to you on this podcast. How's your morning been? It's been great, Dave. Thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Although the weather's not cracking up to be a great one today, but that's okay. We both got parks just out the front of the building. We didn't have to brave that wet weather. It is a winning day already. <laughs> my hair would have went frizzy uh, and my makeup would have melted off. Who knows? But I've had a good morning. I just caught up with my good friend, Barry Wilkinson, and had two double shot coffees, which I don't normally do because it makes me exhausted later in the day. That early high or energy burst you get from it, you pay for it later in the day. You just have another one. Right? You could, you could, you could. It's a dangerous pattern. But it was a good catch-up. There's obviously a lot of economic uncertainty at the moment. And you know me well enough, Libby, to know that when I have anxiety about things, I like to be proactive towards it and do things to reduce that anxiety so I don't have to like push it to the side and deal with it later and all of a sudden that problem becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. So yeah, Barry's been helping me with all my finances, um, home loans and things like that and That's, it feels good. I mean, it's so refreshing to hear people do that. <laughs> and I'm I'm guilty of it. Like I'm definitely someone who's like, I don't want to look at that right now. Yep, yep. I'll just put that on the back burner. And then you're right. <laughs> Inevitably, it always gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And yep. then you're like something that should have taken like five, 10 minutes, 20 minutes to sort out just to look at it becomes this big issue yep. and more and more scary. Oh, we're all guilty of that. We'll talk about that more soon, I think. You know, obviously, when I think of you, I think of uh, swimming and it's exciting times for Queensland, for mm. Brisbane at the moment. Uh, the 2032 Olympics are on the horizon. Even though it's 10 years away, it feels like it's not that far away. You know, for a young girl mm. swimming, did you think, oh, one day I want to swim at the Olympics mm. or did it just sort of happen? Like, what was your path or trajectory towards that? I mean, it's interesting that you say it's it's 10 years away and it kind of feels like a long time, but a short time. Like, for me, I retired basically 10 years ago, which was the 2012 Olympics, and that 10 years has gone in the blink of an eye for me. Yeah. <laughs> so if I think about it like that, 2032 will be upon us in a millisecond. And it's amazing because I wasn't in Sydney when the Sydney Olympics were happening, but from what I have heard, my husband's from Sydney, like the energy, the excitement, the anticipation is just magic. And I I feel so lucky that I get to live here in my hometown and have, you know, we're going to host an Olympic Games and I get to share that with my three young girls. That is, ah, oh, it's like a dream come true for me. For me, growing up, like I just always loved swimming. I loved being in the water. I loved racing. That was something that lit me up. But it probably wasn't until I was about 15 and I was watching the 2000 Olympics on the TV and I saw a, an incredible young athlete by the name of Liesl Jones. Yeah, she was awesome. Yeah. She won a silver medal in the 100 meters breaststroke that year and, you know, she did the, the funny little hand wiggles with her nail polish and she did the, you know, V for victory sign. Yep. And I just remember thinking, why can't that be me? 
she's my age. Why can't I be there on the world stage competing against the best in the world? And we're not short of inspirational role models in swimming. Yep. <laughs> Obviously, the Susie O'Neills and the Grant Hackett's and the yep. Ian Thorpe's of the world were, of course, there. But for me, that moment seeing Liesl, it just kind of opened up my world to go, I could do that. You certainly need those role models and those pathways, that vision, mm. I guess, to those careers when we're young. I remember when I was about 14 and rugby league went professional then. Mm. And I was talking to my younger brother who was about 11 at that stage. This was 1996, 97 roughly. And I read in the paper, yeah, rugby league's a job now. They just train full time and play on the weekends. They don't do anything else. And I saw that and I was chatting to my younger brother and I said, can you believe there's people out there that rugby league's their job? That's Mm. all they do. They don't actually go to a real job. They just train and play footy. That is hilarious. Imagine (laughs) doing that. And, you know, whilst we knew about it, we didn't really think we'd ever do it. I'd Mm. ever do it. But, you know, thankfully, I was a bit of a late maturer when I was about 17, 18. I became a bit of a better player and got my first NRL contract and moved to Sydney to play with the Roosters. So old at 18. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Well, I think a lot of kids uh, these days, or forever actually, put a lot of pressure on themselves to be teenage superstars at 14, 15 Mm. and think that's the way they're going to make it one day. But for a lot of us, including myself, Mm. we mature at different speeds. Myself included. I didn't make the team until I was 18, which is fairly ripe old age for for swimming swimming Yeah, absolutely. When I moved down to Sydney, I played for Australia in the 19s, junior kangaroos, and I got re-signed a pretty good three-year deal for a young person, like Mm. really big money. The Roosters were investing a lot of time and, and money into me. And I was like, yes, I've made it. Here we go. I'm going to go under 20s, reserve grade, first grade. I'm going to be an NRL star. But unfortunately, the path was anything but that. Mm. It was up, down, side to side. I had an ACL Rico. I tore my hamstrings five times. I couldn't get on the field and stay on the field consistently. And after those three years, the Roosters tried to cut me, actually, and send me back to Brisbane. And I just Gosh, feared- Gosh, that must have been devastating. Yeah. I just feared, oh, yeah, everyone sort of said, oh, you're going to be the next big star. And I was going to come back to Brisbane with my tail between my legs. Mm. feel a bit embarrassed, I guess. But thankfully, the Roosters gave me one more year. I took that opportunity with two hands and debuted the next year and obviously never looked back. How was your progression into being the star that you were? Was it anything like that? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because you kind of imagine it is this like linear trajectory that just goes up. Yeah. And for me, I was a late bloomer, although I had this idea when I was 15 that I told nobody else about that maybe one day I could go to the Olympics. It really took, well, it took another three years to kind of get to that opportunity. Mm. And I think in that moment when I sort of saw that possibility with, you know, Liesl at the Olympics, I went, okay, so probably have to start training a bit harder (laughs) because at that stage I was pretty well known as a bludger. (laughs) It's a good reputation. Yeah, (laughs) great reputation, right? So, like, I even had a nickname. They called me Libby the Rock Lobster because I like to sit on the wall all the time. (laughs) Any chance that I got to skip laps or go to the toilet in inverted commas and I went and just had a 15-minute shower, any chance that I had to put flippers on, I did. So, I really had to start applying myself in training. And at first that was just in the sessions that I went to, which is only probably about four, four sessions a week at that stage, which is not a lot compared to, again, like Elisa Jones, who was doing 10 sessions a week from the age of 10. Yep. So yeah, I started training harder in the sessions that I attended, then started slowly adding sessions. And with that, I incrementally saw the performance improve. Yep. 
which is amazing, right? Yep. That's what you want. As yep. an athlete, you want to see the effort you're putting in to, you know, affect your performance. Yep. And once I made that connection that, oh, if I actually train hard, I get to race fast. Yep. Racing was everything for me. So if I get to race faster, potentially beat everybody else or do a personal best time, that was like the biggest light bulb moment for me. And from there, it really did accelerate quite quickly. Yep. So, you know, I made age nationals then I made open nationals. Then I made my first youth team when I was 17. But all the while I was still in the same squad where I had that expectation of being a bludger. Yep. And people were like, oh, we didn't think you were that good at swimming. And, yep. you know, we were kind of thought you were just here to make up the numbers when it came to nationals and things like that. So I realized in that moment that if I wanted to really give myself the best shot to make an Australian team, I needed to change the environment to one where no one had any expectations of me, but also required me to train yep. as hard as I possibly could. So when I was in grade 12, my final year at school, I made the move to my coach, Stefan Widmer. And again, there was this massive acceleration in my performance. So within six months, I'd made my first Australian team. Within 18 months, I'd broken a world record and made my first Olympic team. Wow. So it feels very like meteoric yeah, <laughs> in terms of yeah, the absolutely. trajectory. But of course, once you get to that level, there's constant battles within your mind and within your body of how you're going to take it to the next level and mm. the next level and the next level. Mm. So although it seems very linear, there's always those issues that you're, you're battling either mentally or physically. Yeah, it's one of those things where you've kind of never made it in a way because never. There's always, well, one, there's always self-improvement, right? Yes. You can always beat yourself even if you're the fastest. Yep. But once you make it to the top and you're the best or one of the best, everyone's trying to cut you down. Correct. <laughs> so you got to keep getting better and better to stay up there. Yes. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? And for me, I'm sure a lot of people observe perhaps my achievements and what I, I did in the pool and go, wow, that was an amazingly successful career. As you would know, there's so much that you can look back on those achievements and those performances and you just go, oh, God, I just didn't reach where I wanted to. For sure. Like, yep. you know, in Beijing is probably the most kind of prominent in my mind in the 2008 Olympics. I was world record holder in the 50 and 100 metres freestyle. Yep. I was world champion in the, in the 100 metres butterfly. I expected, I hoped to win five gold medals at that meet. Mm. And instead, I walked away with only two gold, <laughs> a silver and a bronze. Yep. So when you measure it against what your hopes and your dreams and your expectations and your goals were, yep. you've fallen short, which can be crushing <laughs> at the time. And I assume there's like 0.1 of a second, 0.3 of a second in different races that would have separated you all. The 100 freestyle, I came second by 0.04 of a second. There it is. That yeah. must be so frustrating. Yeah. It's almost by chance or something that you well, didn't win or did that? win other times. What is 0.04 of a second? Yeah. It's nothing. Yeah. Anything, anything different. Technical error maybe. Anything yeah. different. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it was my worst execution of a race plan <laughs> <laughs> I'd ever done at any level of competition. That too. Yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> there's things that I could have done better. <laughs> yeah. 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 So in our business, we talk a lot about mental fitness mm. and being aware of your strengths. Because when we're aware of our strengths, it allows us to want to participate in groups join social circles, apply for jobs, 
set goals, set them high and know that we can achieve them. Mm. Probably also add in there, be resourceful when we have those inevitable setbacks. We know what levers we can pull, buttons we can press to get back up on top of our game. Mm. Most Australians are pretty modest, but I don't want you to be modest here. What are some of the strengths that made you the swimmer that you were? Yeah. As Australians, we don't like to be able to go, hey, I am actually really good yeah, at this. This, yeah. is something, this is my strength. Yep. And the strengths are not always just technical things, right? No. There's, um, there's psychological things, behavioral things, interpersonal skills. Absolutely. Yeah. So for me, when I was an athlete, I think some of my skills were once I learned how to work hard, yep, yep. <laughs> I worked really bloody hard. Nice. I was incredibly strong and flexible, yep. which is a, a great combination for a swimmer. And I think probably my superpower yep. <laughs> when it came to swimming was my ability to compartmentalize. Yep. I wasn't perfect at it because there's definitely performances that I know that it impacted my performance. But for the most part, I was able to compartmentalize and really focus on what needed to be attended to at that particular time. Yeah, And that's something that I am very aware of and I'm able to still do now, yep. life after sport. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, life after sport, I'm really good with people. I really enjoy having important conversations, yep. particularly around mental health. I think yep. that is a strength of mine. I'm not great at organization and calendars <laughs> and making sure I book appointments and things like that. That is something that I'm very bad at. But in terms of focusing on what needs to be done right now and executing, that is still a skill set of mine. Yeah, I love it. Love it. Some of those skills you would have maintained for sure. And they're making you great at what you do today for sure. I know I've experienced that and a lot of my old teammates as well. You mentioned uh, retiring from sport. Yeah, it's incredibly complex time, I guess yes. you'd say. A lot of it, I think. Not straightforward at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Some people say to me, oh, yeah, you must miss that sort of adulation and everyone puts you on a pedestal and loves you. And it wasn't about that for me. No. For me, it was a lot around identity, understanding you know, who I was now and who I wasn't now Ooh. as well. And I remember there was this like moment, oh, I've been retired for about four years in 2017. I got a job with the NRL being a project officer for their mental health program. And these people in Coffs Harbour were putting on a big mental health awareness day and they invited me down as the project officer for the NRL. But when I got down there, my chaperone of the day, she's a lovely lady and I don't think she knew quite what she's doing around my identity <laughs> clash at the time, but she was, uh, Come on. <laughs> she was bringing me around to all these young kids in the day and introducing me going, hey kids, this is Dave Shillington. He's an NRL front rower. And the kids would go, Oh, Dave, you're an NRL front row. That's awesome. And at first I went, yeah, yeah, I am. Oh, no, I'm not. Uh, not really. Uh, no, I'm not actually. And they must have thought I was the biggest stronger ever. This guy doesn't know who he is or what he's doing. And you're it, like, neither do I. I, I actually, don't actually know. Kids. That's it. And I didn't know. And as that went on throughout the day, I was there all afternoon. By the sixth or eighth person I got introduced to, I was like, actually, I used to play in the NRL. Now I'm a project officer for the NRL. Mm. Uh, delivering their programs. That was my formal life, I guess. And I remember driving home from that event, which is a fair drive, and thinking, man, like, how do I introduce myself these days? How do I think about myself? How are people viewing me as well? Was that confronting for you? Yeah. It wasn't so much like I wanted to hang on to being mm. that person. 
It was just getting comfortable with being a new person. Yeah. And it made me think about people who go through massive change in other parts of their life because at the same time in 2017, my mum and dad actually retired from the Ooh. workforce as 60-year-olds. And so you uh, went through retirement together. We did, in a way. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of similarities in leaving that sort of work role, your identity attached to that role, mm. your group of work friends maybe, your routine with that, the income that comes mm. with it as well. And then I think of maybe people who get divorced and they've yeah. got kids and they change their surname. One of my wife's friends, you know, she got divorced years ago, but I still call her by the former surname that she mm. had all these years. And I uh, think about, you know, I call her by her real name now, like her current name, because she would have that clash of identity, right? So there's so many parallels that I found with that identity. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting because it is life transition. Like when you're talking about athletes and transitioning from life into life after sport, you do, you have to have those moments where you're like, who am I? Mm, yep. <laughs> what am I doing here? And that, I think, is reflective of all of those big life circumstances, whether it's transitioning into parenthood as yep. well. Because I know when I had my first daughter, it was like I can see my old life. I can see who I was. But now I'm the same person, but now my priorities are so different. Who I want to be in this world is actually quite different to what I imagined it yeah. to be before as well. And I had to really go through that stage of, I think I probably was a, a little more resentful maybe than you were <laughs> at first because I realized I wanted to get away from Libby Trick at the Swimmer because yep. I wasn't her anymore, Yeah, but I didn't know how to define myself. And mm. so it took me a really long time to accept the fact that I may forever be Libby Trickett, the swimmer. That yep. may be how people know me for the rest of my life. Yep. And what I've learned is that I'm so grateful yeah. <laughs> for that. Yep. Yep. I'm so grateful that I got to represent my country at three Olympic Games yep. and do something that I loved and was passionate about for the better part of a decade. Some of the my swimmer friends are going to be friends for life because of that connection. As, as yep. with you, you know, you have that connection, that bond with your teammates and that's something that kind of no one else's experience yep. or can relate to necessarily. And like swimming has literally given me everything that I've got. It's given me my husband, the roof over my head, yep. the majority of my work opportunities. Yep. And, you know, that is something that I'm forever grateful for. But there was a really long time in the first few years of my retirement where I was angry that I was only ever going to be known as Libby Trick at the Swimmer when, you know, I was no longer her. In the grand scheme of things, it's such a short period of your life. That's exactly right. You know, assuming you'll live to 120, 150 Obviously. with modern technology and yes. taking care of yourself. <laughs> uh, no, but it is a small part of your life. And it's a blip. Like if you is. think of, of the scheme of your life, you know, and that's why I think there was a period of time as well that a lot of people were like, but you don't need to do anything ever again. Mm. You know, you don't, you've achieved so much. You don't have to achieve anything ever again. I'm like... So what do I do for the rest, the rest of my, of my life? life's going to be boring. <laughs> right? And you, you're used to uh, setting goals and, yeah. you know, going and competing and having that adrenaline rush and yep. feeling like you're purposely working towards something yeah. consistently every single day. Like yep. I still miss that. I yeah. still miss that routine and that consistency and those big, hairy, audacious yep. goals, you know, trying to take on the world. Like that's yep. stuff that I still miss. Yeah. But I've kind of reconciled yep. it enough in my brain to go, that was, you know, that part of my life and that's allowed me to 
give me a platform to do what I'm doing now, which is like, how lucky am I to be able to do that? But I'm able to take a lot of that stuff and then create the life that I want to live now, especially around kids and family and, you know, work responsibilities as well. Yeah. I might ask you a few questions more about what you're doing now, but I wanted to actually ask one more question about your life as an athlete. And just thinking about like focus, performance, those high anxiety sort of moments that mm. people face in their life and doing a workplace presentation, yeah. pitching for a, a, you know, a sales pitch like that, for example, doing a keynote speech. I want to ask when you're up on the blocks, it's the final of the Olympics. Yeah. Maybe you haven't, it's your first chance for a medal, maybe. So, so the highest sort of pressure moment you can get. Mm. What's your head like there? What are you thinking about? Are you are you in the zone, just purely focusing about your race, or are you mm. thinking about people watching you back home? Are you thinking about failure? Yeah, it's funny. Like you just saying that now, like takes me back to those moments, and you just, I loved it. Yeah, like that was the moment. The thrill I, of it, the competitiveness. I test lived, yourself. I lived for, and it's terrifying. Like, don't get me wrong. Yep. It's not like, oh, I'm just super chill and everything's calm. Yep. Like the adrenaline is pumping. You know, the anticipation is palpable. Yep. But they're they're the moments that I miss the most. Like yeah. that's and again, you feel physically sick standing behind the blocks because yep. it's this this opportunity. Like you get fifty-three seconds every four years to win an Olympic gold medal. Like yeah. that is Nothing. <laughs> sure, yes. The pressure and expectations is enormous. Yep. But for me, that was what racing, competing, swimming was about for me. Yeah. But it's a process as well. You've got to train yourself to be prepared for those moments. And yep. You've got to, you know, train your body, obviously. Yep. But more importantly, train your mind. Yeah to be able to focus on what needs to be attended to at that particular stage. So I had, and maybe we'll go into it because I know we're talking about affirmations, but I had a power phrase that I- Yeah, tell us about the power phrases. Yeah. Well, I developed it pretty early on with my coach, Stefan, because in 2003, which was my first Australian team, I actually got really sick. I had bronchitis leading into the world championships in Barcelona, which was exacerbated by my asthma. So the environment that we were racing in and training in at the time- was really heavily chlorinated. (laughs) And so that was really exacerbating my asthma and my bronchitis. So together we developed a power phrase, which was, I'm strong, I'm fit, I'm healthy, therefore I'm fast. Yep. You're kind of tricking your brain. (laughs) In a very good way. In the best way. Like, so instead of going, oh, I'm so sick or I won't be able to compete or what's going to happen with my asthma. Well, those thoughts, they become overpowering sometimes and you start believing it, it sucks your energy. They're just intrusive thoughts. Yeah. And this is, again, what I love about sport is that you can train your mind the way that we train our bodies. Sure. And, you know, some people might look at it as like just trying to trick your brain and in a way you kind of are. Yep. But also you start believing it. So (laughs) if that's going to help your performance, why not Mm. use that? ability. So yeah, I basically, from when I arrived into the pool deck, I would go, I'm strong, I'm fit, I'm healthy, therefore I'm fast. Yep. And just say that over and over again to myself until I raced. And then in 2006, I added the second part of my power phrase, which maybe made it a bit more convoluted, but it was really important to me because I kept getting distracted by other people yep. in competition. And that was to my detriment. So I went, I'm strong, I'm fit, I'm healthy, therefore I'm fast. No doubts, no regrets. I'm just here to have fun. Yeah. Because it was to remind me of why I fell in love with swimming in the first place. Yeah. It's a game. Yeah. It's a sport. Like how awesome that I get to just 
go in and swim up and down a pool <laughs> for my job. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, yeah. and that, that transformed my racing at that stage. So, oh, it brings you energy. I know uh, there's different types of players I played with in the NRL. Some would be uh, you know, head down in the dressing rooms before the game and, I don't know what they're thinking about, but they just look worried and nervous all the time. And I think sometimes that nervous energy can be good. It might lift you to another level. Mm. Other times it might make you make mistakes. You can't think straight. For myself personally, I like to sort of fuel my mood with things that excite me. So running out for State of Origin, I'd be waiting for the kickoff and I'm the front row in the in-goal area, the very first kickoff, which is the toughest run ever. And I'd be really nervous, but I'd think back to when I was a kid, mm. you know, like 8, 10, 12 years old, my three brothers and I would park ourselves in front of the TV 10 minutes before Origin kickoff because we didn't want to miss that first run that the front rower takes because that is the coolest. It do- yeah, it doesn't get any <laughs> tougher, any more intense like than that run. Yeah. And so when I was out there doing it myself, I was like, there's kids out there watching me going, uh, this is the toughest run ever. And yes. I'd go, that is pretty cool. And I get energized by that and feel, I guess, a sense of responsibility for the Maroons and to make those Queenslanders proud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that's the stuff that gives me goosebumps. And yeah. again, that's the great thing about sport and, and thinking of my kids, and I'm sure you think about your kids, like watching those opportunities now, yep. you know, like my girls get to watch the NRLW and the AFLW, like that is a option for them to go and see that yes. and, and look at that as a pathway yep. Yep. for their careers. Like. Oh, and to think about them like watching you or, um, you know, one of the female athletes like take that run, like that is so cool. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I got to be careful with my kids that I'm not one of those overbearing parents. Oh, no, totally. <laughs> one of those skills or personality traits I've maintained since my career is competitiveness and achievement and yeah. those sorts of things. And when my daughter was about oh, five, she's naturally athletic. She could be a great sports person if she wanted to. And it's her choice, not mine, not mine. <laughs> like, uh, just remind yeah. yourself, Dave, it's not my choice. That's right. <laughs> when she was about five, I took her down to uh, Dillaroo's training, which is the Australian Women's Rugby League team. Oh, awesome. Uh, just to let her see these athletic women that are running, passing, jumping, tackling each other as mm. well. And my daughter's name's Eve. And I was like, Eve, this is what you could do. If you choose to do it, you could be excellent at this. She hasn't taken the bait yet, like, so I don't need to push her. <laughs> but I just wanted to open up her eyes anyway, so she knows. But this is the thing, and I think, you know, for the listeners, I get asked a lot about parents, you know, how do you support your kid yep. becoming an athlete and things like that? Because I'm extraordinarily competitive, although I've had to measure it because apparently it's really unsavory to like flip a board game when you're losing. (laughs) Apparently that's not. Frowned upon. Yeah, apparently it's frowned upon. Um, So I've really had to temper that down. But for any parents out there with young athletes or, you know, potential athletes, it has to come from them. Nice. Yeah, It has to. Like it has to. Yep. Because the amount of young athletes that I competed against who were great as age groupers but were absolutely driven into the ground by their yeah. parents. Yeah, nice. It's yeah. it's yeah. too many. Like it's too many. They got either physically injured yeah. or or really, really sick yeah. and burnt out. Yeah. And then stopped loving swimming. Yeah. And like for me that's the tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> These athletes could have been great. Yeah. But, you know, they were great as age groupers mm-hmm. but never went on to that that yeah. top level. So yeah. it has to come from the child. And the best way, the best way to encourage kids to get into sport is to open their eyes. Yeah. To uh, take them to as many sporting events as possible. In, yep. Like engage with them 
in that conversation around sport and all the options that we have and available to us like that's the way yeah oh i'm so glad you said that that it needs to come from within yeah yes. that's, that's what empowerment's about we don't want to take decisions off people and tell them what to do we want to help them make their decisions and, and find that sort of self-drive self-determination it's funny how it works out with kids right because um, my daughter super athletic and could do anything in sport not just a proud parent she really is yeah my son who loves sport not very athletic, unfortunately. Oh, no. <laughs> but he may end up being great because he, he has may, the passion, yeah. right? He may. And my daughter probably doesn't have that vision of how or why she'd be good at sport. Yeah. But my son, who's only seven, uh, has been recently telling me, Dad, it's going to be interesting when I'm like grade 11, grade 12, and I'm playing in the NRL already, maybe oh. playing for the Maroons. How will I balance that with school? Oh, my God. Like, I, love him. I reckon <laughs> just one step at a time, mate. One step at a time. <laughs> but they're the people, like, they're the. I always bring it back to. There was three of us in the Australian swimming team, Jody Henry, myself, and Alice Mills. Yep. We were the top three in the world in the 100 meters freestyle yeah. for a period of time. Yep. And only the top two in Australia can make it to the World Championships or the Olympic Games. Mm. And the difference in our levels of ability was stark. So Jody just oozed talent. Yep. She was just one of those really annoying athletes <laughs> who just was so talented and yep. you just go, how do you do that? It's yep. amazing. Then there was myself in the middle who was very talented but worked really hard. Yeah. And then there was Alice who was probably slightly less talented than me but worked even harder. Yeah. And we were the top three in the world. Yeah. <laughs> like it's amazing the difference that passion and drive and work ethic can have on your ability to achieve in the world. So Absolutely. I think that's also very important to acknowledge as well. Absolutely. So I guess I just probably want to ask you about some of your strategies you use for your mental health and mental fitness. We talked very briefly about positive affirmations. Yes. They are so powerful for anybody, but particularly if you have that normal self-doubt, negative yes. self-talk, your inner narrative is draining yeah. rather than energizing. Positive affirmations like your power phrases can yeah. be really helpful. And I think it's important, like... We all have intrusive thoughts. Mm. We all do. We all have anxiety. One of my kind of repetitive intrusive thoughts is I'm not smart enough. Yep. And so that's really impacted my desire to achieve a degree at university. Yep. And I've been studying for about 14 years now. <laughs> um, and I'm going to get it. Who's counting? <laughs> I mean, who's counting? It's fine. And I'm going to achieve my degree to kind of prove that thought wrong, but I, I already know that I am smart enough to do it now, which is why I'm continuing to do it. Yeah. But it does impact your decision-making. Sure. And so it's really important to have those positive affirmations that you can, when those thoughts pop in, yeah. you can go, actually, I'm going to train my brain yeah. in that mental fitness way to go, actually, no, I am smart enough. Yeah. Yeah. We've had some breakthroughs in workshops lately. You see the tide slowly changing with men and mental health for women too, but I think women are a few years ahead of us, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was in a workshop recently delivering it and all men, and we talked about positive affirmations. And I threw to the audience and I thought, I've got no chance here of getting some feedback. But guys, do you guys ever suffer from self-doubt, mm. negative self-talk? And I thought, if they don't speak in the 10 seconds I give them to respond, I'll just pick up and talk about my experiences. Yeah. Anyway, this person was straight out, off the, out of the blocks, straight off the bat and said, yeah, actually, Dave, sometimes I'm driving to work in the morning and I think, 
I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so worn out. I don't think I'm going to handle shit today. Wow. And That's when he said that, another bloke, it's like a domino effect, goes, yeah, actually, now that we're talking about it, I spend so much time at work, which I love, but unfortunately, I spend enough time with the kids. I feel like a pretty crappy dad. Yes. And all these other blokes started talking as well. And it just highlights that uh, if you can be a good role model to normalize, destigmatize that conversation. Yeah. To be honest, everyone's got the same thoughts and experiencing the same sort of setbacks and self-doubt. Absolutely. And it's giving people permission to talk about it. Yeah. Because sometimes we feel like we we aren't allowed yep. to have those thoughts or feelings or to feel like they're being a crappy dad yep. or to feel like you're not providing for your family in some way. Like these are all things that we all experience. You yeah. Know? You know, I'm starting a business at the moment, which, you know, you deeply understand. Like it's really hard. And yeah. most of the time you're like, well, what's the point? <laughs> like, yep. Yep. <laughs> what is the point? Nothing's working. You know, it, we're not kind of earning enough money to pay ourselves right now. Like what is the actual point? And that's where you have to come back to your why and Absolutely. those posi- positive yeah. affirmations. Yep. We'll come back to your business in a sec. One of the other strategies I know you're big on and it's part of our mental fitness program is reducing your excess, decluttering your life in all different ways. Tell us a bit about how you might do that from time to time. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting topic because it can really, it can go across everything, right? So it can go across social media. I think that's a really obvious one. Sure, yeah. Either remove the excess by having complete detox days you know, have a detox weekend, just do not go on social media. Whether it's, you know, culling, removing the excess from the people that you follow. Only follow positive people, positive accounts that inspire you and engage you and kind of make you think differently around the world. I think that is really, really important. Obviously, the really obvious one is around your home. (laughs) Just get the clutter out of your house Mm -hmm. (laughs) because how much... Uh, it's amazing how much of a burden and how heavy things can feel when there's just stuff everywhere. But I think one, the one that I'm most passionate about talking about is removing excess people, <laughs> which <laughs> might sound really harsh, but I think the your attitude and your perspective on life is so impacted by the five closest people that you spend the most time with. Yep. And if they're negative, if they're toxic, if they're you know, feel like nothing can be done or nothing can be achieved, that seeps into your soul and it becomes really hard to get the momentum and get the energy to move forward. So if, you know, obviously if they're family, it's maybe hard to cut them out completely, but limit. Yeah. It can be limiting the time and exposure to them or only say, I'll have an I'll have an hour coffee and then that'll be it. Yeah. Just really being very intentional and kind of strategic around who you're spending the most time with. Yeah. I'm curious about that one because we're at similar age. Is that something you've done more so in the last couple of years? Yeah. Out of curiosity? Yeah. Similar. Similar <laughs> to me. Probably the last only two or three years, to be honest. I've probably just made a few decisions around certain friends and so mm. on that I'm like, you know what? I don't think we really align enough to spend time together. And I think yeah. that's an important, yeah, I think you get to an age where you go, Maybe I've been friends with you for ages or maybe you are part of my family, but I don't actually have to. Like sometimes your friends are for a season, yeah, you know, and they're really important for that season, but maybe you start to diverge in your perspective on life or or the same with family as well because that's certainly probably my case. Yeah. And I'm not encouraging people to cut people out completely. No, not be cold about it, just, yeah. But be very conscious about how people impact your energy and your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. 
Another one I know you're big on is around hope for the future. Yeah. And you've talked about positivity, fueling your mood with the right things. Obviously, you've got your challenges with the realities of having a business, yeah. having three kids, yeah. and so- social life as well. <laughs> well, what social life? No. What, what gives <laughs> you the hope and positivity about the future? Yeah. Again, I think it's about the things and the people that you surround yourself with is really, really important in my mind. Yep. That is something that gives me a lot of hope for the future. But I have, I've, uh, to be honest, the, the thing that gets me, other than obviously my family and my girls, the thing that gets me most excited and the most amped about the future is, is having goals. Yeah. And what I yeah. might be able to achieve. Like that is something that allowed me to do what I did in swimming. You know, and I think, I don't know, I'd be interested to get your take on this, but I feel like in the real world, in inverted commas, people don't necessarily take the time to write down their goals and then stick them up on the wall. Yeah. Because that, that, oh, I just, the amazing impact of seeing what you're working towards and and it might just be incremental movements forward on those things. But having that intention and knowing your why every single day, that's, yeah, that's the stuff that lights me up. Yeah. And finding the joy in it, uh, the reward, I guess, in different ways. So oh, absolutely. I was talking to a lady the other day who's got three kids. She's a single mom and she was challenged, I guess, with where she's going in life, what she's doing yes. and what's the purpose and so on. And I just had to remind her that... Uh, you're a mum to these young kids and you are everything to them and yeah. such a powerful influence or indicator on their future. Mm. Enjoy teaching them the values, practicing yes. gratitude with them, giving them strategies around mental health or achievement, goal but setting. But write that down. Yeah. Like yeah. make it tangible because yep. like, that is the most important work yeah. <laughs> that people will do. Absolutely. And we all get complacent and take life for granted and think, you know, this is boring or what's my role here. But as you say, writing it down, a reminder of it, finding that rewarded and even if it's the smallest thing. Yeah. One of the things I love doing in the afternoons is um, going with my son in the backyard and putting up bombs for him so he can catch bombs. Amazing. And we started probably doing it when he was four. But How's your kicking skills? Are they okay? For a front row, not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> no uh, Cooper Cronk or anything, but uh, but we started you know, when he was four roughly and I'd lob the ball at his chest to give him the best chance of catching it. Mm. And that's progressed over the years to now putting up bombs and I'm trying to teach him to catch it above his head like AFL style. Because wing, wingers these days, centers who catch those high balls are pretty tricky. So, yeah. But I don't do that for me. I don't need to practice my kicking, uh, <laughs> but I do it for him and I get yeah. so much reward and seeing him progress and I give him a rap and he pulls a bit of a face going, oh, he's so proud of me, dad, yes. you know, that, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I, I love the reward and spending time with him and knowing my role in playing. And I think that's another beautiful point is having that awareness of the things that give you joy. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. reward, yeah. Yeah. Well, we might wrap up with a bit of gratitude. We finish with gratitude on, on all our podcasts here. I'm a massive fan of it. As a team, we started practicing gratitude around 2014, 15 in the NRL. And it was something we shrugged our shoulders at originally and went, what would we do this for? What a waste of time. Yeah. But it had a really, really positive impact on both our performance, I guess our resilience as well. So, And then off the field too, just, just being a bit happier, a bit positive mm-hmm. mindset. I got a reminder of how powerful gratitude is just the other week where we can sort of direct our brain, direct our attention, our subconscious to the things. Yeah, the things that are going well for us in life. I was camping with some mates over at Fraser Island, our annual fishing trip. 
and one of my mates bought a brand new Nissan Patrol. Ooh, nice. And it was beautiful. Not like my old dingy ute that's um, bumpy and noise <laughs> on the beach. His was smooth. It's V8 engine, leather seats, no cabin noise or whatever it is. Ooh. And lithium battery is showing me all these features. And I was like, could I get one of these for my family one day? I don't know. But I loved it. Yeah. Anyway, I hadn't seen many on the roads prior to that. But then driving home from Fraser, I remember going, oh, there's one of those patrols on the road. Oh, there's another patrol. Oh, there's another patrol again. Were there always this many patrols on the road or I just started paying attention? Yeah. And it's just a reminder of how powerful your brain is that you can teach it to pay attention to these things. And that's how I think about gratitude. So I might ask you, Libby, you know, one or two things that you're really grateful for today. Yeah. I love the way that you phrase that in training your brain to be aware of it, like to to see it come up because I think that we can easily train our brains to be negative because we have that negativity bias in our brains where it's like, oh yeah, everything's the worst. But for me, no matter how hard things get with, you know, starting a business and having three kids and doing all the random stuff that I do, because my life is fairly chaotic from the outside looking in, (laughs) I feel like there's a structure in my brain, but, you know, (laughs) it is fairly chaotic for most people. The thing that I'm most grateful for is that I have intentionally created the life that I'm currently living. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And I have spent a really long, I spent the better part of this past decade trying to work out who I am and what I want to contribute to the world and what my passions are. And I'm living that now. I'm sure it does look great from the outside, (laughs) but for me, it's all links. Like I get to talk about sport. I get to talk about mental health. I get to, you know, talk about yoga and crystals. I, I get... Yeah, I have my podcast and my holistic health business and and I'm still studying and I've created that and that's something that I'm incredibly grateful for. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, you're doing a fantastic job. We've gone way over time because I do love chatting to you. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> no. uh, we but, can gas bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again and uh, keep up the great work. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you so much. And you too. You're doing incredible work in this space. Appreciate it. Thank you very much to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Prime Effect podcast. This episode was brought to you by the Wealth Depot, experts in financial planning. This episode was also brought to you by SW Brokerage. If you're looking for a new home loan, car loan, commercial loan, then SW Brokerage are the people to talk to. And lastly, this episode is also brought to you by Fuel Your Life, the nutrition and dietetics specialist helping humans fuel their lives. See you next time.